Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
will use merit selection to initially pick their highest court judges, and half the states uh, will be using elections to pick their highest court judges. And, and we just don't see the same concerns in the states that use merit selection. Okay, because when I think of appointments, I think that there's, you know, the potential for cronyism and, you know, nepotism and all of those other isms um, that we don't like to see. Yeah, I mean, and that's an excellent point because, you know, judicial elections are a pretty recent thing. First of all, we should take the the 30,000-foot view, which is that the United States and maybe one or two other countries elect their judges. This is a really bizarrely unique American thing. And as you said, it, it did come about because, um, you know, a little over 100 years ago, when we wanted to directly elect our senators, we wanted to break up the big machine politics, folks thought that it was exactly an element of cronyism. You know, those states weren't using, or, you know, the majority of them weren't using merit selection, though. It was typically just the governor, the politicians who had total control over the process. So it is a bit okay. different, but... It's a it's a it's a good argument to keep in mind as we think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing too, uh, one uh, that I think we should talk about here is that uh, when we're talking in this report, we're talking the state supreme courts. That's right. But can, can you tell me? And and the supreme courts. Well, let me see. I want to make this question a two-parter, but let's take them one at a time. Supreme courts. Um, we tend to think of as an overriding body, more of a policy-establishing um, um, body, um, because the decisions that they make can create policy. Um, but most people uh, who are just living their daily lives are exposed to courts only if they have to go to traffic court or, and this is a big one, family court. Right. How does the... Uh, selection of the Supreme Court compare in, in any given state compare with selection of the judges that individuals are likely to encounter when they have to go to court for some reason? Well, there's a ton of variety across the country. So in some states, you know, typically your local judges are going to be elected. And mm -hmm. that serves, you know, many accountability purposes and and it's generally a political party who would who would you know be responsible for finding candidates and and whatnot and you know the, the influence of that isn't isn't as bad as we've seen in these state you know supreme court elections because they don't attract the attention they don't attract the negative ads we certainly have seen some ugly local races don't get me wrong but you know they're just not the magnets for all the problems that that go in front of it but because we operate at the, at the highest level, which, as you mentioned, set policy. So if you're talking about even you know, family court, there are, there are major policy decisions that are made by state Supreme Courts that, of course, bind all of the courts across the state. Um, and you want those decisions to be made by folks who are not uh, being influenced by things like money or name recognition. I mean, you want it to be high-quality uh, judges who are making these decisions free from bias. So, for example, I was just reading this morning about, um, and I don't want to make this a conversation about abortion. That's a different conversation. But I was just reading this morning in Texas, the Texas Supreme Court is either going to or has agreed to review a law that was passed um, requiring abortion clinics to be within 30 miles of a hospital. And, of course, Texas being very large, that eliminates hundreds of miles of, of areas where, women, uh, where abortion clinics can no longer exist. Okay. So if the Supreme Court says, no, that law can't go, then, in effect, that decision will then impact all of those women who live in rural Texas if they want to have access to an abortion. Yeah. yeah. If that's the case, so it certainly that, sounds right. So that's how the Supreme Court decisions then trickle down to impact the the people in in the family courts or in the neighborhoods or however you want to you phrase that. So they do set policy. They do set the uh, rules by which or the precedents by which um, local courts have to have to um, um, abide. So that's significant, but. Um, when we're looking at the Supreme Court, they also can establish laws. 
Um, the the thing that I want to kind of point out to bring it more to the local local thing is that um, if we're talking these kinds of selections at the Supreme Court level, influenced because of things like abortion, heavy money pouring into those Supreme Court elections, I'm sure, um, based on whichever side of that abortion fact you know equation you're on, but wouldn't that also apply to local elections where, okay, this particular uh, community has some sort of hotbed issue, so people who feel strongly about that issue are more likely to contribute one way or another to a candidate? That certainly could be the case. We just see that in, you know, really local elections, court of common pleas level, courts of first impression, especially you mentioned like traffic, municipal courts, if those judges Mm -hmm. are running for election – you know, they may get funding that is overwhelmingly from family, their colleagues. I mean, they're just, they certainly do play a very important role, uh, but mm-hmm. they have to think that because they're not as important policy-wise, if, if you're an organization that's pro-life, pro-choice, and you want to influence things big picture, right, you're going to give to the candidates at the Texas Supreme Court. You're going to try and make that impact there. If you did sure. it on a local level, certainly you would want folks who represent you. But chances are, you know, we just, I would just say by the work that we do and the things that we see and respond to, it may certainly be a problem, but it's not the sort of systemic problem that we see in, yeah. in all of Yeah, and I understand it's not, you know, what, we, what you covered in this report, and I want to get back to the report, but I did want to make that connection um, yeah. that, you know, just because we're going to be talking about it at the Supreme Court levels, doesn't mean it doesn't play out similarly and much smaller scale on local um, things. And the the courts that I'm thinking of particularly are family courts because people's Mm. lives, children's lives, I mean, the family courts are huge for people who are, for example, going through child custody or divorce or domestic violence. And so um, I I just wanted to make that connection and and make sure that I wasn't way off by saying that, you know, we could be looking at a similar um, type of scenario. And it's something that people might want to look at, you know, if they're they're looking at at, uh, their local courts. Okay, let's get back to the report. So first of all, what prompted the report and uh, when did the report come out? So Justice at Stake has been putting out uh, the new politics of judicial elections report since 2000. Uh, This is the eighth edition of the report. We partnered with the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City and the National Institute on Money and State Politics out of Montana. Uh, Those are my co-authors for the report this cycle. But this report has been coming out every two years. Uh, It's been tracking the, the dollar amounts that are spent in these elections and the trends that surround uh, all these elections across the country. So it's been going on for quite a long time. I'm the lead author this time of the report, but I, I certainly, you know, come on the, on the path of many before me who have done a, an excellent job tracking the problem. So this is something that we do to raise awareness. It's something that we do in conjunction with our advocacy pieces about changing judicial selection. It's it's something that we really use um, to raise the profile of of the issue and to try and connect it to, like you were talking about, everyday people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Let me jump in here real quickly before you go into more detail about the report. We do have a call in line. If you're listening and you'd like to bring up a question or a comment, please give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. We also have the chat room open, and you are welcome to go into the chat room and type a comment if you don't want to talk on the phone, and I'll be happy to share those comments with you. So, again, 646-378-0430. So now let's talk more about the report and what the report found. Right. So we found... In the years 2013 and 2014, we looked across the entire country when it came to state Supreme Court elections, and we looked at every documented dollar we could see in these elections. And there were 34 states that had elections at the Supreme Court level, partisan, nonpartisan, retention elections, um, and there was spending in 19 of those states. And in those 19 states, we saw a total of $34.5 million 
was spent on these elections, which is really very important because in 90% of contested races, the candidate who was able to raise more money won. So it really matters oh, yeah. if, these, if these candidates are able to raise money on, on their behalf and if their ca- uh, campaigns can raise money. So sure. that's the big number takeaway. We've got stories from all across the country about who the folks were who were contributing to these candidates or more and more uh, likely now, these outside organizations that just like the super PACs and the dark or secret money groups you see spending in legislative elections, those same organizations oftentimes and the same type of groups are now spending the hundreds of thousands of dollars around judicial elections. So the big takeaway from our report trend-wise after that number is that the portion of the total spending pie of all the dollars that were spent, special interest groups made up a larger chunk of that than they ever had before. Was there any pattern to the special interest groups? Uh, was it, were the special interest groups all over the board, or were there certain special interest groups that seemed to predominate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this traditionally came about, you mentioned Texas. So Texas is actually where a lot of this activity really started, and it, it actually started around a strategy that Carl Rove developed. Uh, and Carl Rove wanted to um, get Republicans to have control of the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, so these grew out of tort wars, you know, business interests, trying to protect their, their liability, and then plaintiff's attorneys who were suing you know, these companies. And so those are the, the real heavy spenders on both sides of these. From there, though, it's taken on a lot of other dimensions. I mean, now there are groups that have interests in you know, energy and natural resources. There are groups who are, who are trying to uh, affect the education landscape. There are groups with um, criminal justice interests and tax reform and you know, uh, groups that have been linked to things like voting rights and voting restrictions who are spending in these races. So what originally grew out of the plaintiff's bar and businesses has, has taken on a totally new form and become a conduit for so many more types of special interests. So have we seen a pattern in, I mean, are there a few companies that you can name who are, are uh, giving, or are you just saying that, uh, is, there, is there one industry or one area that predominates? Does it depend geographically on where the, the election is? What, what do you see as a pattern that emerged in this, this report? Yeah, so this last cycle, the, the tort wars are always there. So what I, what I wanted to do with this report and what, what we're very proud of is that these aren't, these aren't just numbers in the abstract. We wanted to connect it to actual organizations, actual companies, actual interests, and show why they're spending on these elections. So in Illinois, for example, there was a very expensive election about whether or not a judge who was up for retention, a yes or no vote, um, and this judge was supported by an organization called the Republican State Leadership Committee, which is a national organization uh, based here in Washington, D.C. And this organization spent about a million dollars supporting the judge's retention effort, running TV ads, election materials to help the judge get, get reelected or retained on the bench. On the other side were plaintiff's attorneys, who formed an organization called Campaign for 2016, and they spent $2 million uh, trying to have this judge lose his seat. And it turns out that 85% of the money that was spent by this organization came from plaintiff's attorneys involved in a case that was on appeal to the court, that was pending in front of the court, a $10 billion case, uh, tobacco litigation case. So the folks, the folks who were spending, and, and these are, you know, it's plaintiff's attorneys that are representing their client, but they would presumably, if they won the case, you know, this could be a, a huge uh, windfall for the, for the attorneys working there. So they've got a very real concrete interest in it. And that's, you know, uh, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. Well, it sounds to me from what we've said so far, um, 
Scott, that we're talking about two different, and I suppose we could say this in life, um, two different special interests, if you were, in general. One is the people who uh, stand to benefit financially if the uh, if a, a sympathetic judge is placed uh, in decision-making. Another one is uh, the other uh, 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 group would be those who tend to win philosophically if a sympathetic judge mm. is placed. And again, I'm thinking of the abortion issue. Um, so it's kind of like follow the money um, for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah. Um, so aren't there rules for political contributions for judges? Are they different from political contributions for candidates? Yeah, really good question. So, you know, you would think because a judge's role is very different than a a legislator's role, right? A legislator goes out, they say, I'm here to represent the people. It's understandable that if they get donations from certain interests, that reflecting those interests is how democracy is supposed to work. But a judge's role is very different. They're supposed to reflect the law and the Constitution. And they're not supposed to be dependent certain sectors of the community. and, And they're not really as representative of a role there. So when you have, when you open them up to the election system, what you do is you, you make them subject to some of these same pressures to have to go out and raise money and then perhaps become dependent on those sources of money. um, And and you really distort a judge's role there. So unfortunately laws around this and the rules around it haven't really adapted to that. I mean, once you, once you start making judges run for election, you're already so far down the rabbit hole that if you want to have some protections against it, and there are some, there's certainly laws about what a judicial candidate um, can say, right? They can't go out on the campaign trail and say, you know, if you vote for me, I'm going to get you out of a speeding ticket every time you come in front of me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Maybe. I mean, those those sorts of things they can't promise that because they're you know it is an even-handed position that they're working for. But at the same time, it's a it's scattered across the country. Whether or not judges can, you know, you're at a cocktail party and the judge says, "Hey, I'm running for re-election. Can you give me ten thousand dollars?" That leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. It, it opens the door to ideas of access and ingratiation. So there are some states that ban that. There are some states that don't ban that. Um, there are rules about what a judicial candidate or their campaign have to disclose as far as spending, how much money they can get. You know, sometimes there's a limit on how, how big of donations they can get or how much a campaign, um, you know, what they can say or can't say. Sometimes the candidates agree amongst themselves. We're not going to run negative ads, that sort of thing. Um, but the rules are certainly not standardized. And, and really, when you're talking about electing judges in the first place, rules that you're going to put on that to try and fix it, it's already a broken system at that point. Yeah. In our state, Washington, um, judges don't yeah. run based on the political party. Of course, um, um, I think they have it now where nobody runs as a political party candidate. They, they say things like prefers the Republican Party or prefers the, you know, they don't say that they're a Democrat or Republican, even when they are. Um, mm. But, the, you know, I'm talking like in the voter pamphlets and all that kind of stuff. But for the judicial elections, they they don't list any kind of affiliation or preference at all. I mean, these, these folks are supposed to be above the political party influence. But in fact, that's highly unlikely, isn't it? I mean, judges are judges are people, representatives of the community, uh, just just as anybody else is. So these these folks are human, and yeah, I, I you know we would think that a system that doesn't set them up to to be catering toward one party or the other, it's, it's certainly a better option. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, when you when you have judges running for election, you know if, if you have an R or a D next to somebody's name. Sometimes the voter doesn't know anything about these candidates. And there are mm-hmm. judges that they've been legislators in past lives. They were involved in politics. Maybe they worked in a governor's administration. Um, it's certainly possible to try and uh, research them and learn about their background. But when a, when a, a voter walks into, uh, you know, sees them on the ballot, they, they often have very little information about it. So 
Some make the argument that the R or the D is actually helpful because at least you get a sense of who you're voting for as opposed to just going off a last name. Yeah, kind of a general philosophical outlook or something. Um, So we've got all of these people, and and you get people, I mean, you know, in some places you you have to vote for dog catcher. You have to vote for, you know, I mean, really, really small things. And if there's a huge issue for that community, I can see where money is just kind of pouring in because it seems like, the you know, the one with the most at the end wins uh, in so many of these situations. Um, you also have people who have name recognition, and you also have people who are running unopposed. Oftentimes, you get uh, judicial candidates that are just there, unopposed. I, I, it, it seems to me that as a, as a voter in these situations, you're limited to how much you know about this, uh, this particular person, unless you happen to be involved in a case that he or she... Uh, adjudicated, or uh, how do you know? You don't have a clue on which to base your vote. Um, what kind? The, you know, justice at stake is looking at uh, a Supreme Court level with this report. But are there organizations that you're aware of that actually look at candidates? I mean, once in a while you'll get, you know, the bar association, you know, recommending or or uh, supporting this particular candidate. Or you'll have, you know, the Firefighters Association supporting that particular candidate. Um, but other than that, you just don't have a clue. How do people make a, a choice on something like this? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think oftentimes I work in this field, and when I go to vote, I don't know much about the judges, if anything, about the judges whose, whose names are on the ballot. So, you know, in, in some states, like you mentioned, Barr will put out information you could go off of that. That's based on, you know, standard, hard criteria, experience, whether or not they're qualified. Oftentimes the bar will recommend them uh, or not recommend them for the position. But unfortunately, uh, when you get that far down the ballot and if these folks are not prominent in the community, yeah, I mean, voters have very little to go on. There are states that have created websites where a voter can go online and learn about the judge um, you know, hopefully the media pays some attention to these races. The voter can learn that way. But for the most part, and the real danger of this is, this is local level, but still state Supreme Court elections, voters don't know much about these. And so when the only thing that they see are these attack ads, perhaps, saying that such and such judicial candidate sided with child molesters or is lenient on murderers and rapists, I mean, that's that's the sort of thing that they're carrying into the ballot box that they're going to make a decision off of. So that's really alarming that that's what's available. Well, there. and some of these ads, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, they're ridiculous because we always assume that, um, oh, gosh, if this judge let that murderer go, he's a softie and doesn't care about the people and blah, 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 when, in fact, we forget that courts are not about justice. Courts are about laws. And if the law is written in a way that says that judge cannot, you know, uh, uh, find, you know, find that, that person guilty, then it doesn't matter whether the judge thinks he did it or not. He has to follow, he or she has to follow what the law says. And if justice is served during that process, yippee skippy, that's kind of the intent. But it's, it's not about justice. It's about the law. And we forget that. And so if we find something, you know, if we find the O.J. Simpson, you know, uh, released and everybody's outraged and everybody can't understand, you know, how horrible these people are for not prosecuting this person, we we don't understand, I think, as a general public, that sometimes they can't, even if they wanted to. They can't. Am I right on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the scariest thing about it is that the First Amendment, your right to free speech, your right to you know, not have your house searched without a warrant, your right to a fair day and trial, those aren't the sort of things that we should be deciding at the ballot box, right? Those are constitutionally protected principles. And so to make at stake in an election issues like whether or not a judge should be lenient on criminals or, or how often they overturn or implement penalty, 
is extremely mm-hmm. concerning because these are often very fact-intensive cases, uh, so many circumstances at play. And when a judge feels like they could be the subject of an attack ad that said they were soft on crime, it's extremely concerning that they may be shaping their behavior, their decisions, based on the fact that they don't want to get attacked like such and such mm-hmm. candidate maybe did it in an earlier election or in, an, or in a neighboring state. And there's actually empirical evidence now. There's a report that came out last year called Skewed Justice, and that shows that the more attack ads or the more ads that run during a judicial election, the less likely a judge is to rule in favor of defendants. So there is an impact that these ads are having. And there was an earlier report that showed similar findings with regards to the business community and how much businesses were giving to these candidates and then uh, the judge's subsequent decisions. So it goes beyond just the appearance of an impact. There's a, there's a measurable, statistically significant outcome uh, that these that these ads are having on judicial behavior. Yeah. When we're talking the the particular report, I mean, we're talking about uh, Supreme Court, state Supreme Courts, and then we're talking about the other courts. And I think it's important that we clarify that the Supreme Courts do something different than um, Supreme Courts don't care if somebody got a speeding ticket. Supreme Courts don't care whether dad got custody of kids or mom got custody of kids. Supreme Courts are concerned with um, a different level of the law. And I would like to say policy, and I'm not sure that's the appropriate word. How would you explain to people who, who, you know, to some of us who are not necessarily, you know, um, uh, the courts really don't have anything to do with our daily lives, but in fact they do. Why, why should I care about the Supreme Court? Oh, well, let's, let's take a, a recent high-profile uh, issue. So voting rights has, has been very high-profile in the last few years, ever since the United States Supreme Court handed down a decision affecting the Voting Rights Act in 2013. So voting rights are protected by states in their state constitution in 49 of the 50 states. So it will have language that say citizens are entitled to the right to vote or have the right. I mean, it's very explicit in the Constitution. And then there are states that have been passing laws that will restrict uh, the right to vote. There are states that have expanded it. But these cases, you know, when those laws are challenged, they go up to the state Supreme Court. So state Supreme Courts are deciding all across the country whether or not um, you know, folks can have access to the ballot, whether or not ex-offenders, perhaps, uh, upon re-entry, are able, to, are able to vote and to what limitations they'll have on their ability to vote. I mean, if you care about the environment, state Supreme Courts are making decisions that affect the environment all the time. There's, there were two big decisions out of North Carolina about a major energy company. Uh, there was a coal ash spill into a community that had disastrous effects on the community. The, the energy company was sued. It went up to the state Supreme Court. Uh, you know, rate increases for that same company, how much they charge on their utilities, uh, affected by that. I mean, whether it's criminal justice policy, uh, voting rights, environmental concerns, education policy, there was a major decision in Washington about uh, charter schools in the last couple of months. Uh, state Supreme Courts affect a huge landscape of, of laws, you know, 95% of cases in the country are initiated in state courts. And that's something like 100 million cases a year. So they have, they have a huge amount of influence over it. They may not get the high-profile decisions. You may not hear about, you know, the abortion cases, affirmative action or whatnot uh, that we hear coming to the U.S. Supreme Court. But when it comes to local concerns, things that impact everyday people's lives, state Supreme Courts have a huge relevance so basically what we're saying is state Supreme Courts, much like our federal Supreme Court, concern themselves with whether or not something that has been, um, uh, uh, whether a law or a decision is compliant with the Constitution. 
they don't rule on whether something is right or wrong. They don't rule on whether it's good or bad. They just rule on whether it complies with the requirements of the Constitution. Is that right? Well, I mean, it, it depends because state courts hear all sorts of issues, but they certainly are the court of last resort on interpreting state constitutions. So, yes, absolutely. If there's a provision in the Washington state constitution talks about a right to fair trial or cruel and unusual punishment, that's going to be decided by the Washington State Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So, And they review uh, decisions that were made to make sure that they are compliant with that Supreme Court. But the key word I think that you used is interpretation. And that's really the, 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 the crux of all that we're talking about here, right? Um, when we're talking about party affiliate, potential party affiliation or um, big spending. And we're, we're, anything that, when we interpret something, we interpret it based on our education, our experience, our likes, our dislikes. I mean, that's the human component of that. So if we have something that's nudging that interpretation one way or the other, that's where we need to be concerned about whether or not it is fairly nudging that. Am I saying this correctly? That's right. That's right. And, it's, and if you think about it, it's really not the role of courts. People talk about activists, judges. We don't have to present it that way. You know, the legislator, your elected representative are the ones who pass laws. And then the court interprets those laws. So mm-hmm. if you want something to be changed, the way the system is built is that you, you go through a legislature. You don't want that decision to be made by a court. That's not a court's responsibility. So if a court is, being, is making policy uh, dependent on anything else other than the law, then that is throwing our system of democracy into a, into a tailspin compared to how things are supposed to be done. So I'll give you... I'll give you a local example. There was, uh, there was an election this last cycle in, in Missouri, uh, in the capital of Missouri. Uh, there was a county court judge up for election. And a few years before the election, uh, a billionaire in Missouri wanted to get rid of the state income tax. So he spent a couple of million dollars on an initiative that would have gone in front of the voters, it would have been on the ballot, a constitutional amendment to get rid of the income tax. When this ballot language went in front of the court, went in front of the judge who would be up for election, she found that it was misleading language uh, and it wasn't sufficient to make it onto the ballot. So she effectively struck it down, killed the measure. When she came up for election this last cycle, that same billionaire donated to one of these national organizations and the national organization around the same time gave her opponent $100,000 and ran $200,000 worth of ads against her. This is a local level election, right? So, you know, you're talking about your income tax potentially. That's a huge amount of money is, is being decided by a judge who now has every reason to think that her decisions could come at the cost of losing her job, even if she's interpreting the Constitution uh, correctly, according to the law. She has to now look over her shoulder because there may be some billionaire out there who wants to save on the bottom line for whatever interest. And so now that's something that, that uh, you know, she's got to be aware of. That's a total distortion of what a judge's role is supposed to be. Yeah. But is it really that different? Um, than it was, say, 100 years ago. I mean, the dollar amounts are different, and the ways of distributing, you know, how you feel and and your opinion are are way different. But is the actual, is is that really that different from how it's always been when we've had uh, uh, judges, picked judges, and and, uh, as a community reacted to their decisions? Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you're talking about a state where a judge is appointed, right, then there, that uh-huh. judge uh, often, let's say it's a, it's, a, it's a state where the judge is initially appointed and then doesn't have to run for election. So the judge has, has independence, right? They can have confidence that they can make decisions according to the law and, and not according to what popular opinion is going to be and not according to 
who's going to raise money and, and run attack ads against them. So, you know, the good thing about this, that other areas of politics and, and you know, money and politics issues don't have available to them is that there's a, there's kind of an easy solution out there. It's, it's stop electing judges and, and have them appointed based on good, high-quality criteria, uh, and, and we won't have to worry about this. So when we say historically, states who have elected their judges have had many, many more problems than the states that don't elect their judges. Okay. Um, once a judge is elected, I think the the other thing that we need to look at on this whole selecting judges thing is that once a judge is in, you'd need dynamite to get that that person out. Uh, it is very difficult, is it not, in most states to just get somebody out of of the off the bench? Well, for the most part, judges do retain their seats. Uh, overwhelming amount of the time. That's, that's very true, um, which could be indicative of a number of things. It could be because the judge has done a great job, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that sort of referendum. Unfortunately, it could mean the judge has high name recognition or, or whatnot in some states. Um, but there have been examples where judges have, been, have lost their jobs uh, because of public opinion, because there were groups that spent a bunch of money against them, trying to get them off the bench. And that's the role that those retention elections are supposed to play. Um, ideally, retention elections are supposed to talk about, is the judge doing a good job? But unfortunately, those, those things have taken on of, you know, relitigating cases, essentially. If there are folks out yeah. there who are upset with how the judge ruled, they're going to go after the judge. So it's really not serving the purpose that it was designed for. So instead of... of- Evaluating judges, uh, I'm trying to process what you're saying uh, about the elected judges. And it sounds like, as with most elections, we look at things like popularity, whether he or she is good-looking, whether we like their decisions uh, when we're making uh, choices about voting yay or nay for for a candidate, whether they're running for uh, judicial um, uh, judgeship or not. Um, And yet... How, uh, oh gosh, I'm, I'm not even sure how I want to say it. How how should we be evaluating if we're if we're in states where um, we have we have to vote on judges? If we can't just look at the outcomes of their decisions and say yes, we agree with those outcomes, what criteria should we use, and what criteria are available to us for evaluating? So the outcomes are basically reflections of the law, right? So if we're voters and we're not yeah. happy with the law, then we, can, then we should talk to our legislators. Then, then we should take that out of the ballot box with the folks who make the law. So mm-hmm. people, people agree that when it comes to a judge's role, they want them to be fair, right? They want them to, to be good at their job, to have good experience, to be knowledgeable about the law, to be ethical, to be, uh, you know, represent a diverse community, um, you want those people to be above public opinion in that respect. So if you are in a state that elects judges, some states have things called judicial performance evaluations that are conducted where they will have the attorneys who work with the judges, fellow judges, uh, perhaps folks who have served on a jury, um, court administrators. They'll go out and collect information about the judge. Basically, do you think the judge is doing a good job? Do they get through their caseload on time? Are they of high ethical quality? That sort of thing. And then those performance evaluations are made available to the voters, and they're based on the things they're supposed to be, right? They don't say, you know, is this judge convicting enough criminals? It it says, is this judge performing their role, which is not to make the law, right? It's to interpret and apply the law. Okay. All right. Um, So... This is how, ideally, we should be looking at judges. We should be looking at them based on how they do their job, not whether or not they hang them high every time. Um, We should be looking at um, what they offer um, in in a larger picture rather than just individual cases and case decisions. Nevertheless, it often comes down to that, doesn't it? Um, 
I um, am thinking, oh, gosh, about a year ago maybe, there was a Montana judge who just did an egregious uh, uh, decision when it came to a disabled young woman who was raped by her teacher. And the teacher confessed that he had raped her. Um, she said multiple times, he said once. Um, but uh, the girl was uh, somewhat mentally disabled, and in the they they put the man in jail for, I think, 90 days when they first arrested him, and then he got out, and then they litigated the case over the course of two or three years, and during that time, the girl committed suicide. When he was actually sentenced, the judge said the girl had as much responsibility as the, as the, the man, as the perpetrator, blah, 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 and gave him uh, time served, period, the end. Well, this was a huge thing, and and I mean, we I did a show on it in Montana. Now came on the show and talked about it, and and they tried to get this judge off the bench, and he was just he was crucified, but rightly mm. so. If and if you are not able to elect judges, then what recourse is there for the public when something like that occurs? So, under a merit selection system, when that judge's term has come to an end the judge would be reevaluated by this commission, which is made up of everyday citizens, attorneys, and they look to standards of whether or not the judge is doing their job correctly. So if it's the case, and I don't know the specifics on this case, but if it's the case that the judge didn't apply the law, um, you know, and it was the law said one thing and, and the judge just took matters into his or her own hands, then that's, Definitely something that the commission. No, I think it was definitely within the role of interpretation. But Mm. uh, you know, I mean, I don't think there was any blatant disregard of the law. It was his interpretation of how it should be applied in this case. Um, Well, so it wasn't as black and white as what I'm saying. It it wasn't something where they could say, "Oh my God, look what he did." I mean, it was all based on his interpretation, which you know um, didn't go down well uh, with the community. Um, but and, and I don't really want to get into that one particular thing, but I'm just trying to point out that, uh, you know, when there is the election, then the public does have uh, some sort of option uh, when something like that happens. And you're saying that with the uh, Judicial Review Commissions that there would be a similar type of process? Right. I mean, if it's, if it's within the realm of interpretation, then you want the judge to be able to do his or her role. And, and you want a judge to be able to make, if it is you know, according to the law, you want a judge to be able to make the correct decision without having to worry about public opinion or backlash. I mean, that's really something that I think folks on, on both sides of the aisle, the average person would say is that, you know, judges should be able to do what's right, not what's going to be Wait positive. a minute, Scott. This is America. We don't do anything without being concerned about public opinion and backlash. <laughs> well, that's that. I mean, that's... Yeah, and that's the core of the problem with it. You know, you open up the doors of public opinion and, and you start getting folks. You know, the public has every right to, to, to have uh, an accountable judiciary and so forth. But if the judge is applying the law, um, then somebody has been given the responsibility of making sure that we have a fair day in court, making sure that folks have you know right to an attorney, making sure that if if it's us who is in front of a court one day, we want that. The most important thing we have is that that judge be fair to us. And that gives us confidence in the system. So if the judge is acting according to the law, um, you know, it seems like that's something that uh, folks should be okay with. But I certainly understand situations with, with, that resonate with the public that are, that are yeah. whether or not the, the judge performed their job the way they should have. Well, and, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I don't care if you have a doctor in front of your name or judge in front of your name. Some people are just idiots. You know what I mean? You can't <laughs> you can't really do anything about that, you know? <laughs> um, but um, um, for the report, and I, I don't think that we actually gave the full name of the report. Um, the report is, and I'm looking through my notes here. Um, what's the name of the full report? Scott? Bankrolling the Bench, the New Politics of Judicial Elections 2013-2014. There it is. There it is. Bankrolling the Bench, the New Politics of Judicial Elections 2013-14. to um, If people want to access this report, where can they, they get it? Yep. So we have a great interactive website online that breaks down all these issues, has all the numbers. You can watch every ad that was run in judicial elections since 2011 
The website is www.newpoliticsreport. And I must say, I saw some of that. It, it is it is very enlightening and entertaining. Yeah, unfortunately, the ads give us plenty of conversation material. Uh, and, and when yeah. we go around, people are people are always, one way or another, shocked, concerned, moved by the sort of things that, that people are putting on the airwaves when it comes to judges. So we've got an archive up there of every ad. Regardless of what state somebody's from, they can go and click on their state, and they can see how this issue affects them, what happened in the last election, how much money was spent, how much money is spent on TV, how much money came from outside organizations, what some of those organizations' interests were, who funded those organizations. So they can really get a good, detailed picture of what's going on in their state when it comes to state Supreme Court elections. Give us the website again. www.newpoliticsreport.org. Okay, great. Newpoliticsreport.org. Okay. And uh, it's well worth your time to go there. Uh, do that instead of watching a, a couple cats on YouTube. You'll learn a lot more. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, I'm sorry. I must be a little fight. I haven't had any any tea this morning. That's my problem. Um, <laughs> We're working when, on getting the cat videos up there as well. So we'll, okay, that's, that's okay, the next yeah, edition, yeah. So, dressed in little robes, little yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of opportunities. <laughs> yes, exactly. You have to have the cat videos, okay? Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, with the bankrolling the bench, what do you hope to accomplish with this? Is this going to lead to further uh, reports? Uh, you know, what 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 do you hope to accomplish with the uh, report? So, just as it stakes, goal, big policy initiative is to move states that elect their Supreme Court judges to systems that use merit selection to choose their judges. So, this report supports our goal as far as getting awareness about the issue, showing how much of a problem this is being a public education piece. And I think I've seen that the more people are aware of this issue, there's, there's surprisingly little room for disagreement because when you see these ads, when you see the spending numbers, when you see what these judges have to, have to put up with in the, in the new world, as we call it, the new politics of judicial elections, folks generally come together pretty easily and say there's something really wrong with this. So we use the report as a way to raise awareness to get the issue out there. And then we use that to support our policy change, which is moving to merit selection systems. Okay. So clearly, uh, Justice at Stake uh, supports merit election. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. When you abdicate any kind of role in our government, when we abdicate any kind of role in our government in which we can participate, and we abdicate that to uh, give that up to the so-called experts, doesn't that remove us a little bit more from our process, from our system, um, from participating in in um, our, our government at all these levels? Yeah, I'm, and I mean, I, I think you got to go back to first principles on that. You know, the role of the court uh, is, is not a representative one. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, there are there are folks, um, you know, half the country appoints their state Supreme Court judges, and I, I, I wouldn't imagine that those folks believe that they're not playing a role in, in, in what their courts do or that there's, there's an egregious problem with that system. Um, there, are, there are better accountability measures in a merit selection system because you've got, you know, and it's not elitist, in a way, these are you know commissions that are made up of average people, and and then there are lawyers as well who bring in expertise and an understanding of the judge's role. So it's a, it's a really big value add. But those folks come together and they look at the, the criteria that we're supposed to be looking at when we think about judges: the quality of the judge, uh, diversity interests, um, the experience of the judge, and that's just something that the elective system doesn't account for. It's not built in the way that a merit selection system is. And so the, the end product um, just has more safeguards to, to make sure we're not seeing the kind of problems that the report covers. Okay. All right. Um, with the report, 
and I'm going to ask, maybe you can't answer that. Was there one particular industry, I know it was different regionally, but overall, was there one particular industry or point of view that seemed to pile the most money into these state elections? You know, what really jumped out to me, uh, I'm from the Midwest. There's been a lot of conversation about fracking lately, mm-hmm. um, hydraulic fracturing, and it's been a, a really hot topic, controversial issue. And I was surprised to see um, energy companies and the folks that have interest tied to it, whether or not they're the law firms that represent those energy companies or whatnot. There was a, a very high-profile case in Ohio about whether or not cities and municipalities on a local level could regulate fracking or whether that's something only the state can do. And I was surprised to see uh, the fracking companies ended up winning the case and folks associated with some of these energy companies, individuals or organizations with ties to the natural resource energy industries, gave about $100,000 to one of the, the justices who was up for re-election. And she ended up writing the opinion uh, in the case that these energy companies won. Uh, so that, that left a, a bad taste in, in some folks' mouths. But uh, I was surprised to see the environment so prominent in a number of these states. It was a, there were courts hearing major environmental decisions in North Carolina, Ohio, Montana, um, and those are just some of the ones that were really in front of the court this last cycle. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much. Um, I, I found this report just fascinating, and I think part of what I found so fascinating about it was that um, – it, it, it kind of, you know, besides the issue of, you know, elect versus appoint, um, it, it brought to to bear exactly how our uh, representative system, whatever it is, and, you, and I understand the courts are not a representative system, but they're, in fact, when they're running for election, it's kind of behaving that way, um, exactly how much this whole system is influenced by the big dollars and the big interests. And I think sometimes we tend to, to to forget about that when we're talking about things like judiciary. So maybe I'm interpreting that incorrectly, but that's that's what I saw from this. Scott, yeah. again, thank you for being with us. You know, I usually try to uh, ask if you've got any real quick comments that you'd like to leave with people before we close the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're spot on with your with your conclusion there. Um, folks don't think about their court system having money, having this big of a role. And, and I know when I came to this issue, I was surprised to even find out, A, that we elect so many of our judges, and, and B, that it, it often comes down to who's got money. Uh, yeah. that, that was something that really shocked me. So as the report goes into detail about, this is a, a pretty low-profile issue, but I think the importance of it is so much bigger than it gets credit for. And the more and more people well, who find out that judges are dependent on funders in this in this way. I, I think it really has the opportunity to to raise plenty of concern. Well, and I think that your point about people don't understand. You know, people don't understand how the ju- how the court systems work. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, I mean, most of us only are exposed to the court systems either with traffic court or family court. Uh, you know, going through divorce or whatever, and we don't really see the daily impact that these systems have on our lives, and it really is significant, the impact. Um, So, you know, I appreciate you for talking about it. Uh, One of the things that I try to do is to end the show with a quote, and there were so many quotes I found out about the courts, but I think what sums up for me what um, I was hoping that we could accomplish during the show uh, is exemplified by this quote. Americans need to know more about how courts work and how funding of courts harms or hurts taxpayers and the economy. We need to acknowledge problems, use specifics to show how uh, money generates offices and um, uh, show how budget threaten access to justice, as well as how pouring money into it impacts decisions. 
So that's kind of a, a long, drawn-out quote, but I think that it's time for us to not only learn about how money is spent in courts and, and electing uh, judges and funding uh, court behaviors, but I think it's time for us to really pay attention to how court systems work in our country. And so I'm, I was hoping that this show would try, try to uh, shed some light on that so that we can see the impact uh, of courts in our daily lives. So I hope you agree with that, Scott. Courts matter. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about it, Heather. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, uh, again, once the show is over, you have the uh, option of uh, coming back anytime and listening to the show. And next week we are going to have, well, I think it's going to be Lorelai Thompson. We might have to push that into the next week, uh, talking about first responders uh, to uh, a tragedy, to a domestic violence scenario. Um, we're going to talk about first responders either next week or on the 28th. So join us for that on Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you for listening. And again, uh, thank you, Scott Greatek from the report on the funding of judiciary. So thank you for joining us. See you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 